today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Patrick Hannaway. A giant, an icon, a pioneer in functional medicine. You're trying to make me nervous, aren't you? You're always nervous. Yeah, that's true. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. I'm like itching. Is there blotches on my neck or something? <laughs> what, you're allergic to this room? I don't know, I'm allergic to something. In Hello! Here. I'm Michael Chapman. How's it going, Patty Devers? It's a little itchy. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I think I'm allergic to you. I don't know what we can do about that. We're in this room together. That's all right. Social distancing. We're six yes, feet apart from are. each other. Yep. Yeah, which makes the eye contact a little awkward, <laughs> especially for those who are visually impaired. Who are you talking to? Um, no comment. Anyway. This is the lab report. Yes, this is brought to you by Genova Diagnostics. Yes, very thankful for that. Thank you, Genova. And if you... Are hearing this for the first time and you like what you hear, please hit subscribe or rate and leave us a review. Also interact with our show by sending us an email to podcast at gdx.net. Yeah, that would be great. That'd be awesome. Today's a big day, Michael. Yes, I agree with you. <laughs> why do you think it's a big day? I'll tell you why I think it's a big day. Oh boy. Well, we're talking to Dr. Patrick Hanaway. Yeah. Who we both know. Yes. Fairly well. Yeah, I... I you know, I mean, I think we have a, a burgeoning friendship, I would like to say. Oh, that's uh, well said. I mean... That's well said. I'm not... Maybe I'm out of line in saying that. Well, we're just going to put it out in the universe and maybe like, it'll come back to us. Saying hi, like passing in the yeah. hallway a couple Best times. Friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I can say that, right? It's yeah. just, you know, we, he's the former chief medical officer here at Genova, so... Yeah, he's kind of the reason Genova's medical affairs department is what it is. And so we really have him to thank for a lot of things here. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, hopefully we'll get to talk to him a little bit about uh, some of his time here and yeah. uh, the, the profiles that he created, Created, basically. Right. I mean, he helped to create, I should say. I think yeah. there was probably other people involved, Maybe. to be fair. But, but um, he was the visionary. The mastermind. Yeah. Yeah. The mastermind, <laughs> I think is the right. But now he works for, with IFM and he's been tasked as part of this huge movement to kind of help and spread some information around this COVID pandemic. So it's yeah. a very timely appearance, I think. Yeah, he's recently named special advisor to IFM to uh, head up this COVID task force that they're putting together. And they're really doing a lot of great research Amazing. and put, putting together all this perfect uh, information, timely information to support clinicians and patients during this time. So um, let's call them up. Yeah, but yeah, let's just stop. stop the bantering. Okay, I'll let's stop. just call them. Okay, I'm sorry. So, Patty. Yeah. I would just like to say that I don't know about you, but I'm super thrilled to have on Dr. Patrick oh, Hanaway. Absolutely. I mean, how exciting is this, right? <laughs> uh, just to give you a little bit of background on Dr. <laughs> Hanaway, in case you are out there in a cave and not familiar with his work. <laughs> um, Dr. Hanaway is a board-certified family physician trained at Washington University. Dr. Hanaway served on the executive committee for the American Board of Integrative Medicine and is past president of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine. For the past 20 years, he has worked with his wife in clinical practice at Family to Family, your home for whole health care right here in Asheville, North Carolina. Woohoo! Yay. After 10 years as chief medical officer at Genova Diagnostics. Also Dr. yay. Yeah, right. <laughs> Dr. Hanaway became the chief medical education officer at the Institute for Functional Medicine, where he oversaw the development and implementation of IFM's programs worldwide. He has taught with IFM since 2005, and he leads the GI Advanced Practice module and continues his support of IFM as co-chair of the Expert Advisory Board. In 2014, Dr. Hanaway helped develop the collaboration between IFM and the Cleveland Clinic, where he was the founding medical director, then research director, and now serves as research collaborator at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine. And if that's not all. Mm. In 2017, Patrick received the Linus Pauling Award for his outstanding work in medical education and research. So with that, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hanaway, for coming on and spending a little bit of time with us. Welcome. Welcome to the lab report. Thank you so much, Patty and Michael. <laughs> well, 
everyone knows you. We know you quite well. We know that you've been a key opinion leader in functional medicine for many years, both in clinical practice and in teaching with IFM. What's it been like to watch the evolution of functional medicine and what it's become from its infancy? It's a it's an interesting question. It's a fascinating question because I feel like when I was in medical school now, almost 40 years ago, I was looking for where's an approach that includes nutrition, that looks at the whole person, that connects to people in a deeper way and, and was interested in studying mind-body aspects of what's going on, deeper understanding of nutrition. Nutrition is biochemistry, you know, and, and metabolism and how that works. And, you know, I would, uh, I would be asking questions at that point in time. And, you know, I was, able, I was fortunate to be able to find people where I could you know, piece together an understanding. And, and in that very first year of medical school, I, I was in the medical library uh, or medical bookstore and saw a book called uh, Clinical Applications of Medical Nutrition. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I also found a book called um, you know, Nutritional Biochemistry. And those two became uh, key for me. And the first one was written by Dr. Jeff Bland, who you know, I would read his work and kind of follow that for the next 15 plus years before having a chance to meet him and my life unfolded where I moved to Asheville, North Carolina and I had heard of this laboratory uh, that was doing some unique testing and, and got to be able to learn learn much more uh, and become involved with, uh, with Genova Diagnostics. At that point in time, you know, it's like, how do I apply this in practice? I have lots of concepts, but what was emerging was this term functional medicine and this view of a systems-based approach um, that to me had similarities to Ayurvedic medicine and Chinese medicine because it was taking everything into account. It could look across the whole continuum from from wellness to illness and back and how do we work with people to be able to understand and began to deepen my my connection and understanding by really understanding biochemical individuality and how to how to personalize an approach to individuals and a lot of that for me happened through deepening my understanding of being able to evaluate people and test and be able to look at nutritional status see what was going on with their gut and as as that emerged uh, functional medicine as a as a system and as a as a teaching approach was emerging in a way that helped to really give a foundation. And through that foundation, you know, we've talked about because we, we base upon naturopathic principles, but also principles of, of Chinese, Ayurvedic, Tibetan, other medicines that have been there for thousands of years that, you know, when in doubt, start with the gut. Like, what's going on with the gut? And I began to learn that that when I understood what was happening in the gut and I took care of my patients, both in terms of getting them the right nutrients, helping their gut to be in balance and getting good foods and helping them to decrease stress in their lives, they got better. And the gut was one of the key elements of being able to do that. So I had the opportunity then to be able to talk about that and teach about that. And so now we're at a point in time where uh, the, the current healthcare system, especially in this COVID-19 crisis, it's like it doesn't know what to do. It's mm-hmm. as if someone gets if someone gets sick, it's like just well, you know, have them stay at home, and we'll give them a comfort call. And are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Oh, you're short of breath. Now it's time to go to the emergency room, and hopefully you'll you'll be able to move through that process. Um, whereas from a functional medicine perspective, we're looking at it from a how do we help support your innate immune system? How do we decrease viral replication? How do we do those things that are going to reduce symptoms? Certainly, the public health measures to decrease viral transmission are key, yeah. you know, but we also recognize that many, some would even say most of us are going to get this at some point in time. And so how do we strengthen our innate immune systems to be able to have a sufficient you know, NK cell function so that it's able to fight the virus and we're not, we don't fall into that super symptomatic cohort, the symptoms that get so much that we need to go in the hospital. Can we reduce that? increase the asymptomatic carriers, decrease the severity of illness, decrease the symptoms, decrease viral replication, improve the immune system, and work with that. And also on the side of recovery, we're seeing that there's, there's post-infection sequelae in the, in, the, in the heart and vasculature and lungs. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we as functional medicine you know, take this as an opportunity to be able to demonstrate 
how to help people. And we find that the people who are at greatest risk are those people who have, you know, poor diets, who are obese, who have nutritional deficiencies, and who have multiple complex chronic diseases. And we know how to help that. So, you know, that that's a, a unique opportunity. And, you know, I'm seeing the evolution of functional medicine as having the opportunity to be able to now fit into how do we support our colleagues in healthcare systems and, and other areas so that people don't get as sick right. as they get exposed. Right. And it's almost, you know, that functional medicine is part of that long-term solution. And even in, as part of this pandemic in the subsequent changing healthcare landscape, you've recently been appointed as a senior advisor leading these efforts by the IFM as a way to show that. Can you tell us a little bit about your work in that role and what the IFM is looking to create there? Yeah. So the role within IFM as the co-chair of the expert advisory board and setting standards and how do we move the concept of this forward so that, you know, focusing on safety, effectiveness and validity, you know, those things that will carry this kind of approach into uh, a broader base of, of medicine. And really, we're, we're good medicine and, and very supportive of and a, a great addition to the big picture view of how we can treat complex chronic disease. You know, so that's what we've been working on and was asked to step into how do we bring that message forward. And at the time that I did that, we saw the emergence of COVID-19 where it wasn't just something in China, uh, where it was something that we really needed to pay attention to here. So just for the past couple of weeks, three weeks, We've been saying, okay, how do we how do we do this? What resources do we gather? And we've put together a thoughtful plan of being able to develop a breadth of resources uh, on the IFM website, and then a depth of information for practitioners, uh, those who are Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioners, as well as as anyone who's ever connected to IFM and taken a course. You know, some sixty thousand people you know, that we're reaching out to and saying, well, here's information that is credible, that we've done the deep research on it and that we know you can take to the bank because this is data that's been looking at um, the biological plausibility of different agents um, that are virus-specific nutraceutical and botanical agents, you know, that are they're based on human trials, not on mouse models or in vitro studies, but where we actually have human data and human trials that have been done looking at these various kinds of components. So we've, we've laid that out and put that out in a, in a document that's available uh, at ifm.org. Uh, there's a COVID-19 banner right across the top. Click on top and go there. And we talk about 12 different uh, components right now uh, that have met the bar, and we'll be doing deep dives on other kinds of nutraceutical and botanical agents that are helpful and they're all uh, kind of, if you will, scored within looking at, well, what is the outcomes data that supports their effect and how does it work and what is the strength of evidence and what is the risk of harm and giving very specific dosage recommendations of, of what to be able to do for that. So that was our, our first release uh, mm-hmm. on April 10th will be the release of, uh, of an additional document that's a, a a deeper dive into looking at the modifiable lifestyle factors of looking at nutrition, of stress reduction, of of sleep, of exercise, and of, of relationships and connection and how those fit together. Very well documented, all with recommendations that are specific to how do we decrease viral infection. You know, the, 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 all the recommendations are focused there. We'll be going forward talking about how do you integrate this into your practice and then how do, you, how do we look at, at testing to be able to understand COVID itself. Uh, we'll also talk about testing as it relates to how do we understand the overall health status of an individual going into talking about recovery. And that's what we'll be doing all in the month of April. And then we'll be continuing to deepen that in May and in June to deepen our understanding because we're really at the front edge of this and gathering real-world data to be able to see, well, what really works. We have a concept of what works, and we know what's going to help support the immune system, but what is the what is the practice experience? So we're working with other kinds of peer-to-peer uh, learning communities and being able to gather data 
uh, to be able to determine what's really effective and sharing that with each other. That's so great. That's yeah, so much information there. And it's really interesting. I was just looking at on the ifm.org website uh, and the resources that you were mentioning uh, recently that we had the release of functional medicine approach to COVID-19 virus specific nutraceutical and botanical agents. And um, it's just really interesting the different mechanisms that that have been already established and elucidated that are specific to this particular coronavirus. Um, you, you talk a little bit about inflammasomes and particular inflammasomes mm. that are specific to uh, this virus. And I, it just makes me wonder how how interesting was it to you know, being such a novel virus to to be charged with combing that particular amount of literature, which I assume at this point is still relatively, I mean, it's all coming out right at the same time. Right. What is it like right. to, Daily, right. yeah, to have that type of um, effort, I guess, to, to, to frantically comb this new literature for these novel insights? Well, one of the things that we're fortunate about within the teaching faculty and people who have embraced functional medicine is that we we actually have a, a group of, of doctors and clinicians who have thought about, well, what is the mechanism of action of a particular kind of infection and thus what are the, the mimicking agents or what are the natural agents that we have that will actually help to support the process of being able to work with those things. So, you know, for example, when we're looking at the um, at the, the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system, you know, we're recognizing that, uh, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 virus actually engages on the toll-like receptor, TLR9. And when it does that, it's stimulating nuclear B and, and interferon, uh, type 1 interferon. Now, when I say those kinds of things to my primary care colleagues, they say, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> right. but, but when I talk to functional medicine practitioners, they say, okay, I have an idea of what that is. And then what happens from there? And what happens from there is that inside the cell, uh, there is an NOD receptor. We've we've heard about these things in Nod two and Nod fifteen, and some relationships with inflammatory bowel disease. But you know, one of those Nod receptors is called NLRP three, and that is a particular in, inflammasome that, when activated, will stimulate uh, interleukin one beta. Well, we want this to happen. That's part of the immune system. That's part of the protective mechanism that's going on. But if you've got someone who's unable to engage that mechanism, they may be energic or their immune system may be really depleted and is not able to make an effective immune response. And then there is a subset of people for whom they're having an excessive response that goes on that leads into a cytokine storm, right. you know, which is really where the damage is occurring here. So as we begin to understand these things and we can then you know, move to say, well, well, what are agents that actually work to decrease the activation of the NLRP3 inflammasome? You know, as we go into that, we say, oh, gosh, it's sort of simple things that we've, we've talked about for a long time, quercetin and curcumin, resveratrol, right. epigallocatechin gallate from green tea, all these things, there's, there's data on them in coronaviruses and in NLRP3 activation. I just got a, a note this morning. Purple potatoes actually help with decreasing NLRP3 inflammasome yeah. activation yeah. specifically. You know, so there's data out there where we're integrating that and putting it together in a way that works for people. Now, we know that the natural killer cell function is also necessary, and there are many things that if we can actually you know, support um, the immune system in a way so that we increase our NK cell activity and increase the number of natural killer cells that that actually supports the process of uh, not having an overreactive, having a strong but not overreactive immune system. And that has a, you know, through cytotoxic lymphocytes, that has a virus-specific benefit. It attacks, eats, and chews up viruses. Mm -hmm. and so we know this to be the case, and, and we have the opportunity to integrate these these pieces in there. And I just to perseverate for a moment, if you will, I mean, one of the other aspects of that is that, uh, you know, I've, I've been talking about the, the toll-like receptors, but we know that there are these danger-associated molecular patterns and, 
and pathogen associated molecular patterns, so called DAMPs and PAMPs. Yeah. And those those specific things which are going to engage, you know, oftentimes through lipopolysaccharides and and gram negative bacteria, they're going to be stimulating TLR four and increasing NF kappa B production, increasing inflammatory activity. We don't want that. Right. So what what causes that? Well, what causes that is oftentimes a poor diet and dysbiosis in the gut. So recognizing what's going on in the gut and being able to say like, hey, things are altered here. What can we do to bring this back into balance helps us to be able to understand, well, who's really at risk? Yes, it's those patients who are obese, who have complex chronic disease. Uh, we see that the patients who have dysbiosis are going to have an increased risk. We see that those patients who have nutritional deficiencies in things like zinc and selenium are going to have more problems because zinc and selenium are essential nutrients that are necessary to help to decrease, to support the immune system and decrease viral infection. So I said a lot there. Too, yeah. But, <laughs> Important um, stuff. I mean, the, the, the pieces fit together right. and, and the way in which we look at this from a functional medicine perspective allow us to be able to better understand the pathophysiology and how to be able to meet that with with natural agents. And, and we'll use pharmaceutical agents if we need to. We just don't have good data on the pharmaceutical agents that are helpful yet. Right. I mean, that's all tremendous. That's just, that's a superb effort. Okay. And uh, I just can't thank you guys enough for what you're doing. Um, and you mentioned some, a, a couple really interesting things there. Of course, you have a, a lot of experience in the, the realm of GI testing and nutritional testing. And so it kind of gets me to this question of, we have patients who are concerned, we're worried about prevention. And if they were to come down with COVID-19 infection, what are some things that you would do to evaluate them from a management standpoint to, to make sure that we're optimizing them as best as possible? I think the first thing is to look at the red flags and to be able to say, you know, are they having difficulty breathing? Are they coughing blood? Are, are is there anything going on that that is a red flag that says you need to go to the hospital? You know, a lot of the kinds of evaluations that we can do to to determine, you know, where someone is at in terms of improving their overall immune system and decreasing their risk of of a, of a severe illness, uh, we can do over the phone or video over telemedicine. Sure. But if we've got someone who's who's actually having um, shortness of breath or you know, difficulty breathing or, you know, grasping for air or, or having a, a persistent deep cough, it's not getting better and fevers that are not getting better. Those are things that we're going to want to have it be evaluated in person. Right. But short of that, okay, so someone doesn't have those red flags. I got exposed. My son's girlfriend has, has COVID and he came home and, you know, he didn't tell me. And so I've been exposed. We can talk about testing. In a, in a moment of, you know, how to be able to look at the antigen and looking at antibodies. But right now, the turnaround times on those things are, you know, in the order of three to 10 days. And so you don't know right away. So right. then what can we do to be able to help and, and uh, evaluate the individual? Well, knowing what's going on with their gut is going to be an important piece because if they're having dysbiosis, I want to be able to help bring their gut back into balance. I want to get them, you know, eating a diet uh, that is going to have a rich phytonutrient spectrum of foods uh, that is going to have the diversity necessary. So I just say, you know, look at your plate, make sure you got five colors on your plate. You got a, a rainbow colors there. That's going to help support the diversity of what's going on in the gut. Right. You, if you are having bowel symptoms, you know, what do we need to do to help be able to understand that? Is there a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that's going on? Is there dysbiosis? Is there maldigestion? The kind of tools that, that we've used and looked at will help to understand for the individual. You know, to me, better to do that now before you're sick so that you can be working on that road to being able to bring your gut back into balance. Right. We talked about at the beginning, kind of the old naturopathic uh, maxim, you know, all disease starts in the gut. Now, while the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus will attack and connect to the ACE2 receptor on mucosal membranes, which are in the gut and are in the lungs, it appears that it's in the, the lung part of that that really where the issue is. So we're not talking about SARS-CoV-2 in the gut 
having an effect. Uh, although in a small percentage of patients it may, uh, we're really talking about the gut as the home of the immune system of two-thirds to three-quarters of the immune system and that, what, what the interface is between our gut microbiome and the immune system, uh, that intrinsic relationship that's going on that we want to bring into balance. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is, you know, looking at, at testing and understanding where the nutritional status is. In, in particular, you know, zinc and selenium have been noted to be issues, but overall, in supporting the nutritional status of an individual, those are, you know, from a, from a big picture functional medicine testing perspective, key elements that will help the person to move along that continuum from illness to wellness. Great. And, you know, as part of that, as part of, of this gut connection, we talk about the HPA axis and stress, and we know that the mind-body-spirit connection has been a huge part of your life. Can you touch on that and maybe how mindfulness might be something for us all to embrace, not only during this stressful time, but as a longer-term wellness goal? Well, and, you know, thank you, Patty. Yeah, it, it's, um, I mentioned early, you know, when I was in med school, like the two things that seem to be the biggest issues are nutrition and its interface with the gut and the and stress and how we work and relate with that. And there are many different kinds of approaches and tools, but what we, we do know is that when we have increased stressors uh, going on, and so like a fundamental change in our lives, we're, stu- we're, we're stuck at home, we can't go out, we don't have our work, we're worried about finances, there's a lot of different things going on. Those aspects of, of the stress hormone, of the activation of the HPA axis and, you know, increases that go on there will have, will, will have a pro-inflammatory effect. They're going to increase the activation of the, of the immune system and, or they're going to deplete the immune system and, and offer an endocrinology, the intrinsic relationship between those two things. And so what can we do to be able to decrease our stress? It's not as though stress is not going to happen. It's how we change our relationship to the stressors that are there. And so right now, the stress of, of the virus infection, the stress of being at home, uh, the stress of the financial stressors that many people may feel, they're going to be there. How do I change my relationship to what's going on with that? How do I find mm, a, right. a greater ba- a balance inside? And, and what am I doing to care for myself in the process? So as we move through that, we see well, you know one aspect that uh, we haven't touched on yet, but that is really important in the literature is sleep. Getting adequate amounts of sleep and getting the right kinds of deep sleep are very important you know, to be able to help the overall axis of, of health and well-being and to decrease inflammation. We find that people who are sleep-deprived will have an increase in low-grade inflammation, increase in insulin resistance that's going on. And so working with that, working with uh, emotional eating, you know, I, I find for myself that, you know, when I'm at the office, I'm not, I'm not walking over and going to the refrigerator and kind of mindlessly gathering something, having good foods in my refrigerator helped to be able to do that. But then going into, well, how am I slowing down and listening to what's going on and how am I taking care of myself? And we talk about stress reduction from my perspective, you know, the way I, I talk about it with patients is that it's non-denominational. You know, we can say meditation, prayer, yoga, mindfulness, knitting, walking, exercise, right. going yeah, for right. run. There's so many different ways that individuals are able to do this. Find the one that works for you, that feeds you. And it's not sitting in front of the television because it's that is not going to reduce, that is not going to help to enhance your capacity to be able to deal with stress. One of the things I like to uh, I like to work with people on is I say, and here you can tell with some simple tools that look at heart rate variability. There's a couple simple ones that are, are available. I guess I'll just go ahead and say the names. Like there's there's heart math. Mm-hmm. There's a aura. There's an aura ring. There's a uh, Elite HRV, an interesting company here in Asheville that's using tools for helping you to understand where am I at right. in my overall stress status? Am I incoherent? Am I balanced? Do I? What's the beat to beat variability that goes on? And when I talk about that with patients, the way I, I state it is that 
there is a variation between every beat of your heartbeat. And that tells us whether or not you are in sympathetic overdrive, fight or flight response, or in a parasympathetic rest and relaxation, chill response. And what we want is we, we actually don't want either in extremes. We want to be in balance. And how do we do that? And looking at that beat to beat variation, when we're stressed, things are tight and and the variation gets much smaller. And when we're, when we're in relaxed, the variation gets bigger. There's more spaciousness. Right. And it can be measured directly. For me, being able to spend time and connect in nature, not you know going on a hike, talking about my EMR or about COVID, but just spending time in nature helps me. It's going to be different for different people. And I want to encourage people to find out, well, what is it that works for them? Right. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I f- I feel like in a lot of ways there w- with this particular COVID uh, crisis that we're all under right now, there is increased stress. There is um, all these particular elements that, in a way, is forcing people to kind of examine and evaluate what they're doing on a regular basis. And I just wonder that at the other end of this, whether there's this huge opportunity for individuals to embrace more of this functional medicine lifestyle. And I I see more and more people really reaching for what is it that I can do down the road, not only down the road, but right now to really address my overall health status so that under this particular crisis and then on the back end of it, that I'm actually an improved individual, um, just mind, body, and spirit. Well, I think there's many people who are, are hoping that it moves in that way, and, and certainly I am, I am one of them. All I can do is, is work to understand how to do that myself. And so I think that this pandemic you know, kind of puts all of our individual stuff right in our face yeah. and being able to look at that. So I know on a nutritional side, you know, people have to cook at home. My friend Mark Hyman's is... People spend more time watching cooking shows on TV than they do cooking. Right. Um, but but now but now you got to cook, and so how do I take that and work with that in a way that is really reflecting on and deepening my understanding of, of caring for myself? Um, for me, what I've found is that there's so much intellectual stimulation around all of the COVID stuff and a need to try to do the work um, that I'm watching that my exercise routine has has fallen away. And so I've moved my home office down into the area where I exercise and, you know, I'm taking breaks in between, you know, meetings and calls and the work that I'm doing. And I'm, I'm getting on the bicycle and I'm getting on the, um, on, on the rowing machine and, um, you know, or doing a little bit of, uh, of TRX exercise to, to help me because I've, I've lost that as part of my routine in my business. So the, the pandemic tends to uh, accentuate where our imbalances are right. and what's right. important for us to be able to look at them so that even though, you know, we're not commuting, we're not traveling, we're not seeing as many people, you know, everyone is finding other ways to fill that space. It's right. been great to connect to old friends via different kinds of, uh, you know, Skype, Zoom, FaceTime, whatever, whatever your platform is that you're using. But, uh, you know, it's also necessary to care for yourself in the process. And so, you know, until you're really caring for yourself, it's, it's difficult to care for other people. Yeah. Can, can I touch a little bit on that, this practical part of it? And I know you mentioned this when you were discussing part of the program IFM is rolling out, but on this practical level around the changing healthcare climate, we know that many clinicians are transitioning to these telemedicine platforms. Do you have any experience with those or practicing remotely? And, and what do you think the pros and cons of that approach might be? Yeah, that's an important question because we're really seeing a big shift that's going on. So within our practice, our uh, EMR works with a portal. And so patients are communicating with me through that portal. I have patients around the country, around the world, who are able to access me through uh, virtual visits. And we've been doing that in a in a HIPAA-compliant manner for, for some time, although we never saw new patients. I, I was always you know, following the rules of the, the state of North Carolina and the medical board, and you know, we'd always see new patients initially in, in person coming in. Uh, it's changed. We've begun to see new patients uh, as uh, virtually, which I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. And what 
what I find is that, you know, I'm able to get 90, 95, maybe 98% of what I would have gotten, you know, through looking at them, talking to them. I've been found ways to be able to have them help me, you know, do, do an exam, do this, do that. You know, it's not a full physical exam that I'm able to do. And certainly when we come back to COVID, since I can't listen to their lungs or take an oxygen saturation, you know, there, there may be points where I need to have them be seen. But, but in general, uh, the, the virtual health option is a, is a great option. And the, the rules, the regulations have opened up to allow for that to be easier to do. And so moving into you know, working with virtual health is something that this is a this is an opening and an opportunity that we can do, and it gives us access to be able to see many more patients. I've I've had inquiries from around the country of you know can I can I talk with you? And now uh, as we we have this opening, there's there's greater opportunities to be able to do that. Yeah. And so what we what we want to want to do within that is we want to be able to use these tools and begin to. Um, um, more more broadly accessible to individuals, and I think that the that the virtual the virtual health or virtual medicine telehealth tools will allow us to be able to do that. Yeah, it really opens things up, doesn't it? Yeah. And another thing that I think is interesting is that with some of these tools that are coming out, um, we've we've talked about the sort of functional medicine approach tool that that's been launched and uh, soon to be a few others, modifiable lifestyle factors and some clinical implication tools. Uh, you also mentioned that you're going to be putting together a, a bit of a paper around testing. Can you touch on just a little bit around the, the COVID testing and um, some general takeaways from what we can expect coming out there from IFM? Yeah, well, what we want to do with uh, a primer that we're putting together on that is we want to be able to help uh, clinicians to be able to understand, well, what are the specific things that, that I need to do? What are the things that that I need to understand about testing. So within antigen testing, which is the nasal pharyngeal swab that is happening initially, that's you know looking at do you have the antigen present? And the, the, the presence of the antigen is we're finding a lot of or indication of a number of false negatives. This is probably due to sampling error, not necessarily due to laboratory error of the PCR or uh, nuclear antigen amplification processes that are currently being used in antigen testing. But that's just telling us about presence. And so from a public health perspective, that's great to be able to know. Um, But now we're seeing the emergence of antibody testing, looking at IgM and IgG, Mm -hmm. uh, whether there's uh, we're seeing the first uh, acceptance of finger stick stick testing, uh, not yet in the home, but uh, it certainly appears that we would be moving in that direction, which will be like a pregnancy test. You break mm-hmm. your finger and it says, you know, IgM positive, IgG negative. That means you've got acute illness. You know, we see that IgM will elevate within three to seven days after exposure. And, and so that is going to be useful information, but it's also important to know that you may have a subset of patients who five days after exposure do not have the IgM yet, but it doesn't mean that they're not actually infected, that they're not actually carriers. And so the timing and turnaround time is going to be important to help people understand. In some places, like in Germany, they're actually talking about, you know, having people whose IgM is passed and who are IgG positive as the certificate of immunity and returning to work. There are implications there, and there are some people who may have been exposed and who have not developed a high enough IgG response to trigger the quantitative um, measure on the, on the finger stick, on the home-based finger stick test. So there's implications here that we're mm-hmm. trying to look at and understand because then there will probably need to be quantitative testing that's done to say, well, what is your antibody titer? Or quantitative testing saying, well, what is your viral load? So we're going to be learning more about the process as we step through this. You know, right now, the, the antigen testing that we're doing is good, but it's not sufficient. A uh, recent article in the uh, New York Times told me that the uh, San Miguel County in Colorado, uh, which contains Telluride, mm-hmm. so over there on the, on the western slope or in the, in the San Juan Mountain, all 8,000 people last week were checked for IgM and IgG uh, doing testing so that they can really understand what's happened with the population, who's mm-hmm. been exposed, 
who were carriers that were asymptomatic, really getting a population-based understanding. We're going to have an opportunity to move in this direction. It will take months before we have that really integrated, and it's going to be important for clinicians to know, well, what exactly does this mean? It's not difficult, but you've got to have an understanding of what is the normal progression across the population of the illness and how do we work with this. It's also going to help us to see how many people actually have been infected who have been asymptomatic carriers. We don't know the answer to that. We've seen the ranges uh, say somewhere between 10 to 20 percent, but since we don't have clear antibody testing uh, happening on any kind of population basis, we don't know the answer to that. So those are some of the interesting testing considerations, and we'll be talking about that in a, a primer that we put out uh, April 23rd. Great. Well, we're looking for that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have a little bit of a question. This is kind of unrelated to uh, the COVID epidemic that we're on right now, but just you know, since we have you and <laughs> your familiarity with nutritional testing and the history there, you know, one of the questions that we always get on the phone is, uh, you know, what's the difference between on a nutritional evaluation between a functional evaluation and a direct evaluation? And on the NutriVal, right, this is a test where we're looking at organic acids, amino acids, and that is all helping us derive some of these functional nutrient recommendations. And I'd just like to hear it from the godfather himself. Just so people understand, he actually helped to co-develop <laughs> this entire test that people right. use every day and it changes their lives. So let's put it in context, so, Michael. This is not, we're just not just asking some guy what he thinks right. about it. This guy made the test. So how do you explain this concept of a functional nutritional evaluation and why is that so important? Well, I want to just step back and say that over 20 years ago, when I was looking at using tests that looked at amino acids that gave some indication of what's going on with the diet and what's going on with essential amino acid intake and, you know, making some inferences about what was going on nutritionally, you know, based upon the work of, of Dr. Jeff Bland, uh, Dr. John Pangborn, Dr. Richard Lord and, uh, and Andy Brawley, that putting those pieces together and then looking at organic acids and being able to see the cycles and being able to see metabolites that were associated with B vitamin deficiencies and being able to look at what's happening with the mitochondria and the Krebs cycle and seeing well, which, which kinds of uh, nutrients were necessary to help that work properly. And what we did was we said, you know, can we take these pieces together and be able to review, go through the peer-reviewed literature and see what is the interrelationship between each of these biomarkers of amino acids and organic acids in particular and be able to make a determination of how do we weight that information so that we can give good recommendations of where there may be a functional imbalance that's going on. Now, the simple example that many people know is that you know within um, an organic acid like methylmalonic acid, methylmalonic acid, when it's high, it's an indication of a B12 deficiency because B12 is needed as a cofactor to be able to take methylmalonic acid and remove the methyl group and make it into malonic acid. And so when you have insufficient amounts of B12, then you'll, then you'll have elevated methylmalonic acid levels. Well, that's something that's very simple and clear, but we find that there's at least 12 other metabolic pathways uh, that we can measure with this testing that will also look at the, at the functional need for B12. And why is this better than measuring B12? Because when we measure B12, what we have is a statistical distribution where by definition, 2.5% are low and 2.5% are high. That's how statistical measures or normal distributions are made within laboratory testing. Mm -hmm. And yet when we look at methylmalonic acid, we find that, oh gosh, 35 to 40% of people are, have elevated methylmalonic acid. That tells us that functionally, 35 to 40% of people are having a B12 deficiency. And when we gather all of these uh, metabolites together, we can sum that data to be able to get a better picture. So it's instead of looking through a keyhole, we're looking through a doorway uh, or we're looking through a big window to be able to see what's going on. Now, we will you know, see the evolution of this kind of metabolomic testing to be able to move out. And instead of measuring uh, 117 different metabolites, you know, we'll be able to measure a thousand or several thousand. We'll be able to include the metabolites that come from the gut microbiome. You know, we'll deepen our understanding of this. But right now, being able to do 
do this kind of testing gives us a much bigger window to look through and understand than being able to look at the actual direct measurements of a B vitamin, for example, or the direct measurements of, of an intracellular magnesium. I know they're useful measures, but they are, they are not sufficient. So again, direct measures are useful but not sufficient, whereas having a functional approach gives us a much broader view of what we can do clinically. I love that. Dr. Hannaway, I mean, your impact not only on Genova but functional medicine cannot be stated enough. Um, and we're so honored that you came onto this podcast to speak with us today and offered all of this information. So timely and so important. We're just so honored to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you both. And thanks for continuing the great work uh, of educating the practitioners out there, helping them to understand, you know, what we what we do is we find that, you know, uh, people become interested in, in just giving them one next step to be able to take. What is the step that I can take that can help me to help my patients? That's what the clinicians out there want to be able to do. And when we can provide them tools, you know, whether they're through the work that you're doing or the work, you know, that IFM and, and many others are doing to help educate practitioners to be able to support them in the process, you know, or educating patients so they can bring this information to their their practitioners and help them to understand while wow, there's there's more opportunities to move people from illness to wellness than they were aware of and I'm so glad to be a part of that that process and, and so appreciative for the two of you to invite me to be on this uh, on the show today oh well if you've listened to any of our episodes dr. Hannaway Michael you know, it was just inspired just to ask one random question to all of these people with gravitas. That was actually inspired by you. Yeah, I think because one of the <laughs> thoughts was, wouldn't it be interesting to have all these individuals on and have a normalizing question that's a little bit bring some levity to the show? And so, right when we even before we had the podcast, we kind of made the joke of, wouldn't it be funny to have Patrick Hannaway on and ask him the question, just something like, "Do you like sandwiches?" Which then morphed into every single episode we ask this random question, like. What's your favorite vegetable? But it came from this feeling of, you know, Dr. Hanaway has such gravitas and, and everyone will be listening. What What's, be how can like? we humanize this What man, would it be like right? to ask him whether he likes sandwiches? So, Dr. Hanaway, um, do you like sandwiches? Well, I, I'm, I don't know how I inspired the question, but it, what it, it brings up uh, first a, a story of, uh, of my uh, friend. Lee Lipsenbaugh ended up uh, in 2010 uh, dying from esophageal cancer at 56 years old, but he noted it when he was eating uh, a favorite BLT sandwich of his that he was having difficulty swallowing, and he was he was a big, uh, he worked with a lot of musicians and gave free care to musicians commonly uh, out of Fillmore West and, and in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And I was a big fan of Warren Zevon. So when when uh, Warren Zevon, who had uh, developed cancer, was being interviewed by David Letterman uh, in a, a one-hour interview that, that David Letterman did. You know, at the end, he said, do you have any advice for people, you know, based upon what you've gone through? And uh, Warren Zevon said, I enjoy every sandwich. Aww. And Lee wrote a book called Enjoy Every Sandwich about uh, how, do we, how do we enjoy every sandwich in life? You know, so when you ask that question, it actually takes me to that story of remembering and reminding me to enjoy every sandwich. So for <laughs> me, the kind of sandwich that, that I like is I like sort of a, an avocado toast with some basil pesto mm, on it. And, you know, doing that, sometimes just that, sometimes if I have other vegetables that have been cooked, I had some cauliflower rice uh, yesterday that I, that I added on that. Now, I you eat it on a gluten-free bread and many other times instead of a sandwich uh, or using bread, what I've come to use is uh, uh, these large portobello mushroom caps. And so if I'm going to have a sandwich, I'll warm up that portobello mushroom cap and then, and then make a sandwich uh, from there, which is really, you know, sort of a portobello mushroom cap on the bottom and a piece of uh, lettuce on the top to kind of close the sandwich in. It's not, I don't think it meets the definition of the Earl of Sandwich. It's acceptable. It is acceptable. Yeah, it's possible. I think of it as my sandwich of of choice, and uh, I do work to enjoy every sandwich. That's excellent. That's an expert answer from an expert, and uh, I I appreciate that very much. Um, 
But thanks again, Dr. Hanoi. It was awesome talking to you as always. And we'll talk again real soon. Yeah. And keep up the fantastic work and everything that you're doing over there uh, at IFM. And we will will absolutely stay tuned to all the new materials that you guys have coming out. Great. Thanks so much. Well, that went well. Nay, that's my line. <laughs> but it did go well. It did go well. Beyond You're right. well. It went very well. Yeah. He's incredible. He is. You know, every time I hear him speak, I learn something new. And today was no exception. I'm just super excited about the different materials that IFM is is putting out during the COVID-19 outbreak. And it's just um, very timely and well done, uh, all the work that he's doing over there and everything. And, and, and the rest of the IFM crew, their, their task force, just really impressed with their ability to comb through all the literature and put this stuff together. They are on it. But you know what else I love about talking to Dr. Hanaway? What's that? His voice really calms me. Like, I don't know what it is. Is it his cadence of voice or the tone of his voice? I feel very calm. Yeah, well, maybe it's partly the fact that he's trained as a traditional healer. But uh, yeah, you're right. He does have right? that kind of that calm voice. Maybe he, we should get him to do like a guided meditation. I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. Or maybe it's because he's like family here to Genova. That could be so too. So there's something just makes you feel better about life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's hmm. a good point. That's a, that's a <laughs> nice um, way to reflect on, on that conversation with him. I do feel calmer as well. Right. And with that, mm-hmm. maybe we should just uh, we should wrap it up in yeah, this calm, zen state of ours. <laughs> but first, we need to do a disclaimer. Oh. Right. You're going to do it? We're yeah, gonna I'll use do a it. Drop? I'll do it. No, oh, no. I'll go. Yeah, well, I'll do it. Okay. Contents of this podcast are meant for educational purposes only. They are not meant to be misconstrued as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Thank you very much. Oh, good job. Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to take this calm zen state and Hmm. talk about stress. Yeah, we're going to talk about the adrenal cortex stress profile. And the HPA axis and how they interrelate. Sounds good. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. I don't know what happened with this microphone. Squeaky. Yeah, it's, What's going it's on problematic. There? That noise is horrifying. I'm going to keep making it. That's the worst noise that you could possibly be recording. Oh, yeah, you better get used to it, Chapman, because I ain't fixing it.